Hello and welcome again to the Talking Guitar Podcast, brought to you by the North American Guitar in Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, Lindsay Straw, and today we're featuring my chat with luthier Mark Gallero, whose unique resume includes time spent learning from legendary builders Irvin Samaji and John Grevin, as well as making puppet armatures on a popular stop-motion animation movie. From LA to Portland, Mark's history is a fascinating blend of complementary crafts and disciplines with everything seeming to dovetail logically into the next project or pursuit. Mark also has a particular focus on using alternative tone woods, but we dig into this increasingly relevant topic even more too. Be sure to check out our corresponding blog post, which I'll link in the show notes, to see photos from Mark's animation projects, as well as, of course, beautiful photos of his awesome guitars. Please enjoy my chat with Mark Gallera. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for doing this. I'm so excited to talk to you some more about your background with uh, Luthery, as well as everything that you kind of like led you into guitar making. So I guess we'll just go ahead and dive right in and, and yeah, start thank picking you for your, me, Lindsay. Yeah, start picking your brain about your background, because a lot of Luthiers do seem to have backgrounds in other arts or other fields that are sort of um, well, artistically related, but you, I think are the first one I've met who has a background in film specifically. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I know you, you've mentioned a little bit about how that has, that sort of got you into woodworking and, and took you closer to the path of guitar making, but I just, just tell us all about your whole process from film school to now. Well, I actually studied philosophy in college and had some, some space to fill when I was coming up to graduation and took a filmmaking class the cameras we used were these Bolex uh, 16 millimeter cameras from a hundred years ago. Um, and uh, I kind of fell in love with the single frame option that that camera had, where you could do a frame at a time and do all sorts of experimental type little short movies and stuff like that. After school, I fell in love with it to the point where I decided, you know, I, I grew up on the East Coast and I decided I'm going to head out to L.A. and see if I can get into filmmaking. And so that's what I did. And I was working kind of on a freelance basis and it ended up being kind of great because you end up on these kind of low budget, no budget projects where you need to be creative with a limited amount of resources. Mm-hmm. And that always kind of stimulates creativity. I feel when you're, when you have like some pretty tight parameters around you, you need to yeah. make it work. And so I found myself kind of being drawn to the things on set that I had an aptitude for. And that ended up being, you know, just building stuff. I've always worked with my hands in some capacity, building props and set pieces and actual sets themselves and things like that. And then just working like freelance gigs on the side whenever a project finished up and I had a little little space of time. And one of those happened to be with a furniture maker in Venice, pretty close to the beach and just kind of living this really interesting lifestyle, building furniture in his backyard and mm-hmm. uh, in this idyllic setting. That kind of got my wheels turning on what I actually wanted to do. After being in LA for a couple of years, my love of building things developed and, and grew. And I realized I didn't really need to to be in LA anymore in order to build things. And I didn't have any space to build things because I was kind of crammed in a small apartment. It's kind of expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I ended up moving up to Portland, which, which is where I am now. And uh, at the time, at least, this was 2006. You could rent a place for practically nothing. I rented a house for 500 bucks a month. I had a two-car garage, you know, a nice yard. And I just started working on little projects, primarily at the time, just little stop-motion projects, building building small sets and stuff in the garage. 
took some woodworking classes at some at some local schools and stuff. I was working on a tree farm to make a living at the time. Just a beautiful existence, just kind of working with my hands on the tree farm and then coming home and just working on these little creative projects. That sounds awesome. Were the were the yeah. films like your own sort of like stories and everything, or were they often for other pe- in collaboration with other people to sort of be the animator of their project? Well, at the time, I didn't really know anybody up in Portland. I was at a point <laughs> in my life where just traveling around and seeing new places interested me. So I wasn't working with anybody. I was just kind of, you know, figuring out as much as I could just on my own, just working at night and and coming up with little projects. None of them ever mm-hmm. went anywhere. It was mostly just in an experimental phase. Right around that time, there was a stop motion animation studio in town that was going from being kind of a small commercial type studio to funding its first feature film. And that happened to be Coraline. I don't know if you ever, ever oh, saw wow. that movie. Mm-hmm. And so they were crewing up for that at the time. I caught wind of it and just applied, you know, a million times until they finally <laughs> gave me the time of day and called me back. You know, I was showing up at their door and hey, <laughs> and I had enough of a, a resume having having worked in LA for a couple of years where they kind of gave me a crack and just it hired me on. And I was lucky in the timing of that because it was kind of the wild west at that company at the time. It was very early mm-hmm. days. People were coming from around the world who had all sorts of relevant experience to work on a stop motion puppet feature. Mm-hmm. And what I ended up falling into was the puppet making itself. So if anyone's not familiar with stop motion, it's actual 3D animation. So you're working with physical objects. Mm-hmm. So you have a physical set and it's just a miniature world and the characters are anywhere from a couple inches to a couple feet tall. And so I ended up finding my way into making the armatures for the puppets. And that's basically like a an articulated metal skeletal frame. Okay. Mm-hmm. So essentially it's miniature precision metal work which is what I ended up doing for about 10 years. Wow. And, you know, working with a crew of 50 to 60 people just in the puppet department and maybe, I don't know, anywhere from five to 10 at any given time in armature building Mm -hmm. itself. Uh, Probably even more than that at certain times. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I I imagine that must be really intricate. And so just the amount of time it must take for each one. And would would you also be like sort of operating or would that be somebody else's job? So there's a whole team of animators that, specialize in that and are extremely talented mm-hmm. uh, and and kind of like taking these little lifeless figures and making them have these performances that you see on the screen when you watch these movies. Yeah. It's funny. It's it's almost so good that, you know, when you watch a movie like Coraline, a lot of people don't even realize it's puppets because mm-hmm. it's so smooth. It's hard to believe that it's a puppet that's being moved a frame at a time. Yeah. The process is you have this puppet on a stage and you move it fraction of an inch, step back, take a frame, yeah. come back in, move it again. <laughs> and you, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's to an be amazing. Able to have like, yeah. To have like the, I guess like the ability to sort of just, I feel like I would get like halfway through and be, not even halfway, probably like a second through and just be like, I forget what I was doing next for this movement. Like, it just seems like you'd have to be able to tie together the next thing. So, I mean, just, yeah, that level of skill and patience is really incredible. Yeah. It's an, it's an amazing skill set. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have all sorts of tricks that they, they'll act out the scene like in front of a camera themselves and then mm. use that as reference. There's all these different tricks that that they use. It takes 24 still frames, like I just described, to make mm-hmm. a single second of footage. Yeah. And so you can imagine over the course of a hour and a half <laughs> long movie, 
but I mean, it, it was an incredible job. Um, got to work with a very fun, talented group of people and would have to work pretty closely with the animators to understand the, the shot they were doing, the performance demands that they would need out of the puppet. People are sculpting these figures and then molding that sculpt making the skeletal structure and then having to cast all sorts mm -hmm. of foam and silicone <laughs> materials over that. And then a whole costume department and paint department and really kind of fascinating stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The, the I feel like anything to do with animation, like just once you start to get it, like just lift the surface and see just like the huge teams that are involved with making all of that possible. It's like one of mm -hmm. the most fascinating things for sure. Yeah. You know, you um, watch the credits roll at the end of one of those things. And it's yeah, like, it's just like, <laughs> what could these people possibly have been doing? To, you know? It might not seem like it, but the the amount of skills that I learned in that job that are directly relevant to guitar making, mm -hmm. you know, it's pretty clear crossover that you might, yeah. that might not be obvious at, at first, but it's, I feel like that's kind of where my guitar making training began is just learning how to build high precision things and and mm -hmm. you know jig making and to be able to document your work enough to track it over time and and repeat things when you need to do duplicates and things like that building this thing that's ultimately going to go on and be handed off to somebody to to create a performance with mm -hmm. and in the case of animation you know that's to make this little puppet come to life on screen and but in guitar making you know building this thing that's going to be passed on to somebody with a different skill set to kind of like breathe life into it and mm -hmm. just have it culminate in that in that performance at the end so yeah those parallels are totally there that really makes a lot of sense so during this whole time well not the whole time but like your your guitar making sort of started and overlapped with your your animation experience right yes mm -hmm. actually an another little boost into woodworking after Coraline since that was the first feature film that that company made there was this period of time where they kind of let everybody go because they weren't sure how it was going to do, whether they were going to do a second one and, and keep the thing alive or what. And this was around 2008. And so at the time, I had, I had kind of fallen in love with woodworking enough where that was my plan B. I, I thought I'll go try to get a job at a custom furniture shop. But uh, 2008, the economy wasn't doing that well at the time. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I'd show up with a resume and they'd say, you know, we just laid off five people last week. No. Don't expect a, a call, but we'll take your resume sort of thing. Yeah. What I ended up doing is building a, a teardrop camping trailer. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with that. Yeah. Oh, cool. It was a crazy project to take on. It was far <laughs> beyond my my capabilities at the time. <laughs> Even now, I don't it's like I don't know how I pulled it off, but that was the first major project that I took on as a as a woodworker and as a builder in general. And so I built this camping trailer from the ground up and you know, it had a little sleeping galley with some cabinets and then in the back a little hatch with a kitchen and stuff oh cool um, so that kind of like really dug me deeper into the woodworking interest ended up getting hired back onto the onto the next movie which was paranorman i don't know if you've seen that one i haven't seen that one huh eventually um a friend of mine patrick this guy who had come out from north carolina to to build puppets brilliant guy used to make some really amazing stuff still does Patrick Zung, he and I caught wind of this guitar building course that was being taught at Mount Hood Community College. And so he and I signed up for that. He's a guitar player too. He plays in metal bands and stuff like that. We signed up for this class just as a fun thing to do. And kind of the light bulb went off and mm -hmm. I realized this is the thing that I want to do. 
that was my first introduction to even, you know, the concept of guitar building. It wasn't really something I had even thought that people did. Uh, obviously people did, but you know, <laughs> something that I could do, I guess. Yeah. That's, that's crazy that that was, I mean, I guess that's always the case for, for some things, but, um, but that was like, you hadn't even really thought about it before then. And then that was just like, yeah, kind of clicked in. Yeah. I'm very lucky that I kind of stumbled into that because it's one of those things where you kind of go through your life wondering what you're going to do and trying different things. And mm-hmm. I had found this great thing that that I was really enjoying, but there was this other thing kind of just sitting there in the wings that was a slight kind of jump from where I was to where I eventually realized I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how, how intensive was that course and how long did it last? Um, it was one semester, I think maybe 10 classes. We were taught, uh, it's this local builder, Dan Biosca, who teaches that class. And I think he's still teaching it. But, you know, he he works you through the fundamentals of building an acoustic guitar, just mm-hmm. the the basic tools that you need, building the mold, coming up with your shape, doing all the things you need to kind of assemble an acoustic guitar. You know, mm-hmm. it's called acoustic guitar construction. And guitar building is one of those things where you can, a lot of people build guitars and you can build a, a really nice little guitar just from learning the fundamentals and then it's kind of a lifetime challenge to optimize that device and to uh, build it as efficiently as possible as a, as a sound generator. Mm -hmm. In that class, John Grevin, a local legend builder came in one night to kind of um, try out this lecture that he was going to be given at the 2011 GAL convention that was coming up. And so he came and he practiced his, his presentation. And that just kind of introduced me to what even the goal is for a custom guitar maker. Mm-hmm. And so that was extremely inspiring. I kept in touch with John. He's had me over his place and taught me all sorts of stuff. And then went to that convention. The GAL is the Guild of American Luthiers for people wondering. Any you know budding guitar makers, I recommend checking that out. They have a, a quarterly magazine. And you can sign up with them as a member. They have conventions every two or three years. And ended up going to the 2011 convention. It's in Tacoma, Washington, which is where they're headquartered. Okay. And just went to these extremely inspiring workshops by, you know, some of the legends. John Grevin gave two presentations. Charles Fox was there. He gave a presentation on his workflow and his jigs. He's kind of one of the legendary jig masters. <laughs> Kent Carlos Everett gave a presentation on his evolution of his workshop setups. So you could kind of, I got a, a little bit of a glimpse into kind of the life of a guitar maker. Yeah. And, like how things get done. Yeah, it, how it's like a constantly evolving process. Mm-hmm. You never have the perfect jig, yeah, um, unless you do. And then you know, <laughs> there's always something that is shifting or improving, and you know, mm-hmm. it's part of the fun of the job. Just this constant process of refinement. Mm-hmm. Just kind of dug myself deeper into the guitar making hole, <laughs> or uh, <laughs> climbing the guitar making mountain. Maybe a positive spin on that. Yeah. Decided, you know, I, I really want to dig deeper into this thing. Mm -hmm. One of the ways to do that, that, you know, John Grevin started uh, working with George Grun down in Nashville back Mm -hmm. in the day as one of his repair guys. And I stumbled upon Frank Ford's website, frets.com or .net or whatever it is. Huge respect for the repair people out in the world because they're kind of the the backbone of this whole thing, keeping, keeping the engine in tune you know, you always hear repair people talk about things that they come across that they see a guitar going through over time and how that kind of informs the design process and and kind of informs things that you should be thinking about out of the gate. 
because these things go out into the world, but then they have the life that they live and you want to prepare for that in your designs as best you can. Yeah. I feel like the luthiers who have a good background in repair are often the most, well, like they're realistic, obviously, because they know what a guitar is going to go through, but I feel like they, that's such an important process to to have been a part of. And I, I think if anybody skimps on that, I think that's probably to the, the detriment of their instruments in the long term. Yeah. I think what ends up happening is you end up learning repair by kind of fixing your own mistakes yeah. <laughs> over time, which is, you know, a completely valid way to learn. And I've certainly yeah. done my share of that. But it's good to to have spent that time, like seeing what what other what mistakes other people made, and then you can mm-hmm. sort of kind of prepare for that in the first place. So, yeah. yeah, that's that's a really valuable experience. So I ended up stumbling into this place in town called Eastside Guitar Repair, oh, okay. um, mm-hmm. which is run by this this local repair guy Ryan Lynn, really great repair guy, old Roberto Vengrad from the '90s, and mm-hmm. uh, he was kind enough to take me in for a Saturday shift. And for a couple of years, I was working with him, just helping him just with some basic setup and repair stuff and also just kind of prepping for more extensive repairs and then just being able to peek over his shoulder and, and ask questions as he was doing some of the more intricate stuff. Forgot to talk about your musical background. Um, yeah. So you, you obviously you played a little bit in uh, high school and college. Yeah. Got my first guitar for my 16th birthday. Kind of hit it pretty hard as a teenager. I probably played more in the first five years of playing than I'll play for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, had a little bar band in college and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. soon after that became kind of a, a fun, casual thing that I I mess around with mostly on my own, just in my living room sort of thing and occasionally with friends. Uh, Do you listen to a lot of like guitar centric music still or are you kind of not really necessarily devoted specifically to like listening to like Tommy Emanuel or like the kind of the guitar greats? There's all sorts of great guitar in the music that I listen to, but it's not really in the world that I'm operating in as a builder. Mm-hmm. Kind of a separate thing. Yeah. Are you more, do you listen to more like rock music or music that's more electric driven or more acoustic? Uh, it's kind of all over the place. Sturgill Simpson, I like to listen to a lot. You know, Hayes Carl's a guy that I like. Uh, Kurt Vile, Black Keys, mm-hmm. uh, Ty Siegel. There's this girl I came across recently. Uh, Nilifer Yanya. I don't know if you've heard her mm-hmm. music at all. It's kind of all over the place. I'll hear something on Spotify and just kind of go down that rabbit hole and just switch mm-hmm. around the place. I listen to a lot of podcasts while I'm working too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. So aside from, well, I f- totally forgot to ask you about your your apprenticeship with Irvin Samaji. When did that yeah. come into play? Well, the more I got into it, uh, I at some point wanted to learn more and more and more and came across Irvin Samaji um, as a guy who is obviously a legend in the field and Mm -hmm. um found out that he had these these two books that he had written and picked those up and those things just kind of blew the doors open on what was possible and how much people have learned about guitar making and what makes these things tick and uh also the artistic side of it just the visual side of it so i i became completely glued to those books and um would spend all my free time reading them and taking notes and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And at some point along the way, I don't even remember how I learned that he occasionally takes on an apprentice. Mm-hmm. And that that just kind of intrigued me to to no end. I think at the time, I didn't imagine that that would ever be something that I ended up having the opportunity to do. But um, Irvin's work and his writing, you know, just really inspired me and took my interest to another level Mm -hmm. and i reached out to him one day just on a whim and uh we kind of started a back and forth 
anyone who's ever emailed with Irvin knows that he he likes to write. And, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. he's very um, imaginative and can really like, yeah, he's he's a very unique writer. <laughs> yeah, also very generous with his with his time and knowledge. You know, one thing led to another. I inquired about the apprenticeship program and. For the people who've done it, you know that when when you kind of get to a point where that's a consideration, he sends you like this 15-page document kind of outlining what the apprenticeship is, what his expectations are, what it would require from you, and steps that need to be taken in order to even get to the point where that's something that might happen. Mm-hmm. And so that involves sending him a letter of intent sort of thing, photographs of what you've done in the past what your hopes are for guitar making, what your hopes are for studying with him specifically, all this stuff. And so that eventually led to him inviting me down to do like a formal interview for that, which is a two-week process where you go and you stay in the shop. Oh, wow. And you just kind of crash on the couch and just (laughs) live in the shop for two weeks. And he just runs you through your paces (laughs) physically and psychologically just to kind (laughs) of see if you're... uh, See if you're a good fit for the shop with him, with the other apprentices, because there's always an overlap of Mm -hmm. of two or three people. And then you need to be in a position to be able to to do it because it's a a long-term commitment. It's unpaid Mm -hmm. um, and it's in Oakland, which is one of the most expensive places to live uh, on the planet. (laughs) And so by the time you get to that point, it's almost a self-selecting process. You know, Mm -hmm. do you want it enough? And are you in a position in your life where you're able to pull it off? And do you have the relevant skill set or at least the aptitude to, to be able to thrive in that environment? Right. And is it a typical, like, is there a length of time that it, he generally kind of sets it out to be like very kind of programmatic or does it vary by person and sort of what their goals are and how long they can really afford to be there? Um, it's generally the same, but, um, there's some logistical considerations. So international people who want to come over from other countries are limited by the U S government at right. two years mm-hmm. because the type of visa they need to come over and do it is only two years long. Mm-hmm. If you're from the U S and you don't have that restriction, he asks for a minimum of two and a half years. And then, oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that long. Yeah. And you know, you're living in Oakland and, and it's a fully immersive Mm-hmm. experience you're you're doing a pretty big deep dive in, mm-hmm. into the the world of Luthery and into Irvin's world cuz yeah. you're working in his shop with him and with the other apprentices learning how to become a guitar maker and everything that entails mm-hmm. i mentioned that other class being kind of like learning the fundamentals this is kind of learning you're kind of expected to already have that stuff under your belt by the time right you get there and it's 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 then kind of breaking it down on a granular level and really getting into the the finer details of how do you make this thing as responsive as as possible and mm-hmm. taking all of the factors into consideration and, and refining it to the point where it's is hopefully a world class instrument. Yeah. Wow, that is that's so intense. Um yeah. and was it just like basically, I mean, obviously full time, I would assume, but is it like more than full time or like do a lot of folks work jobs on the side and kind of have to split their time or does it kind of vary again per person just based on what they can sort of take on? As far as I'm aware, no, nobody who was there when I was there did that. I mean, I, and I don't honestly <clears throat> see how you could do that. It's, yeah. it's so, it's so intense. I don't see how anyone would really have the, the ability to do that. Maybe it's happened. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Cause the thing is you're, you're working in the apprenticeship and working for Irvin and working on, on his guitars and 
learning from him, but also you're expected to be, and you want to be working on your own stuff, yeah, developing your own designs, kind of taking what you're learning in real time and applying it to your own work and practicing and and going through that process. Not really giving your brain the opportunity to check out and like revert back. Like it's better sometimes just to be all in and fully immersed like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to give a shout out to uh, Chris Morimoto, who's a former Samaji apprentice who um, kind of stayed on in urban shop and works there and helps out a lot with the guitars and with the, with the apprenticeship. And uh, anyone who's gone through that program, I'm sure will agree that we all owe a great deal of uh, gratitude and respect to Chris. And, and I've learned an incredible amount from him and he was always a solid kind of touchstone to, to bounce stuff against. And yeah, shout out to Chris. Thanks. Yeah. It's those kind of like those quieter people who sometimes maybe don't necessarily put as much out, but yeah, he, Sounds like he he needs a little bit more attention for his work mm-hmm. in the wider world. So the, your main model that you you, you make now is is the OM. Um, are there any specific like bracing patterns or construction techniques that you came upon during that time frame that are distinctive to your guitar? I very much build in the style of Irvin. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of with my own twist here and there on certain components. Irvin really advocates for symmetrical bracing pattern and mm-hmm. and thinking of the top <clears throat> as a unit. There are different theories about the two Martin offset tone bars and the lower bout. Some people build asymmetry intentionally into the top. Mm -hmm. We could go down all sorts of rabbit holes with this. Yeah. I essentially use Irvin's bracing pattern and follow his kind of theoretical understanding of how a guitar creates sound and Mm -hmm. how to best brace it and voice it. And to do that kind of critical dance with mass and stiffness. I mean, Irvin's really known for his his really imaginative and creative inlay and rosette designs. Um, yours are like totally on par with that in terms of being really unusual, not, I don't want to say unusual, but like you wouldn't necessarily expect the things that you do with your inlay and, and your aesthetic appointments. Um, did you kind of come into a lot of that while you were there or was, was there influence from the animation days that kind of played into your, your inlays and stuff like that? You know, I was definitely influenced by being there and kind of seeing I mean, some of the, anyone familiar with Irvin's work, you know, he's got some extremely Mm -hmm. intricate, really mind blowing type of inlay detail work and stuff. And I think coming out of the gate, I was really pushing that sort of thing, partially just to see what I could come up with Mm -hmm. and just as a fun experiment and really trying to develop my own visual style, which I don't think I really had, Uh, you know, I'm still continuing to figure out for myself what my own visual style even is. It's kind Mm -hmm. of. I feel like I'm still at the beginning stages of of exploring that. But one thing you bump up against is just efficiency. I mean, mm-hmm. in order to make some of these more intricate designs, it takes time and energy just to come up with them and then mm-hmm. to figure out once you have kind of a conceptual idea of what you want to do, then it's like, well, how do I even do this? <laughs> and that's a whole other other process. And those things take time. And uh, unless you're charging a lot of money for your yeah. guitars, like, Samaji level money, you quickly bump into just that trade-off between kind of following your wildest design ideas and and efficiency because you mm-hmm. need to get guitars out the door and figure out how to put food on the table. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really lucky I ended up in Oakland during that period because one of the things I became drawn to and still am is uh, like graffiti art and just mural art. I would walk to the shop and just the amount of really high level 
artwork that you see just on the side of a building or just in underpasses on the freeway and things like that, especially with color. I find that to be extremely inspiring. I drive my girls to to daycare along this stretch of road that's parallel to a rail line. And so there's constantly freight trains passing as we're driving back and forth. And that's a, that's an incredible uh, kind of canvas for mm-hmm. graffiti artists. And so occasionally I'll be at a train crossing just kind of taking pictures of cars going by <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, that's cool. That that really makes a lot of sense because you you do use color in a way that not a lot of other folks do. It seems like everyone that I've seen it so far has been pretty different and it doesn't seem like you repeat yourself too much. I don't know if you've seen, it's kind of like a micro mosaic tile mm-hmm. thing. I've done, I think, three of those. Okay. I'm not opposed to doing repeat stuff if people are, are interested in it. I'm also trying more to... Um, I don't necessarily want to be known as an inlay person. You know, it's right. one thing that I, I'm interested in, but the visual aspect of guitar is just one aspect of it. And um, it's funny. I think Irvin, for people who haven't actually played one of his guitars, they think of him as kind of a, a visual guitar maker. The aesthetics are so prominent, but when you actually pick one up, it's like, oh, this is a beautiful instrument. It also yeah. sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes not having it be like necessarily a, an artistic canvas, but Mm-hmm. focusing more on it being an instrument you know that's something i also do and some of the guitars that i've made and hope to continue making are just a little bit more simple and and refined i like to be able to to do both yeah yeah that makes sense yeah it seems like there there's like a really s- big split between the folks who are like just strictly the really understated almost scandinavian aesthetic versus mm-hmm. the more visual stuff but yeah i i think like the one that you sent us i feel like strikes a good balance of being very like very much kind of focused on the woods itself and like you play it and it's amazing but then there's just that rosette was just so unusual but it's not super flashy or anything like that it's it just adds like such an interesting touch yeah it's <clears> something <throat> that thank you um <laughs> it's, it's a challenge to to experiment with colors and things like that without it becoming overwhelming or distracting or something mm-hmm. so. the other thing that i think is like so interesting about your work in particular is you got to focus on using non-tropical hardwoods and more sustainable wood sources and your your core model your offerings are myrtle and uh walnut and so what was your sort of driving factor in terms of making that decision to focus on those tone woods versus going after the brazilian rosewoods and all the kind of more typical stuff was it was that informed by your experience at the tree farm or is it informed by a desire to be more sustainable and eco-conscious yeah i think the latter it's such a complex topic. It could warrant a whole series of podcasts in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are a lot more people who are more expert in this topic than I am. When I bought my first wood for my first guitar, it was from a guy down here in Southern Oregon who's built a lot of really great acoustic guitars and acoustic basses. And it's a focus of his that he talks a lot about on his website. His name's Dave Mays. And it's something I hadn't really thought about at that point when I was first starting out, but that kind of planted the initial seed in my mind. And so kind of early on, I thought, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We have all these options for tone woods. Seems like a good idea to use some that aren't on the endangered species list. Yeah. And so I do use some tropical <clears throat> hardwoods, but there are some that I prefer just based on their conservation status. And so I decided to just kind of make that call out of the gate. Irvin has been very encouraging of it from the get-go and I think would like to be able to experiment a little bit more in his own builds, mm-hmm. but he feels that people expect primarily Brazilian rosewood when they order a guitar from him Yeah, because there's kind of a inherited perception 
that's come down through the generations. There's kind of a hierarchy of tone woods that people have in their minds that I don't think is necessarily based on on reality as much as it's based on a number of other factors. It's a very yeah. complex issue. But Irvin told me many times when we would talk about this sort of thing, he would say, be very mindful of the choices that you make when you first introduce yourself to the general public, because those will be the things that you become known for. And then yeah. the things you become known for will be the things that people will want and expect from you. Because of course mm -hmm. they will. That's what you're advertising. The people who are drawn to you are drawn to you for the things you're you're putting out there. Yeah. And so I, I, I decided, okay, I'm going to choose to build with the things I want to build with. And that will draw people to me who are open to and interested in those things. When I made that decision, I don't know that I necessarily understood what that would entail. And it, it's ended up kind of pushing me in, in directions that I wouldn't have otherwise gone that I'm really glad to have gone in. Again, like I was saying earlier about something else, just kind of having a set of parameters to work within sometimes forces you into kind of corners that you need to creatively work yourself out of. Yeah. Luckily, there are all sorts of great woods that make great guitars. And um, I mean, wood is not, it's not like metal or plastic where you can draw kind of hard conclusions about its properties just based on its classification. Yeah. It's so much more, I, I feel like I ran into that making all these videos about like Coca Bolo and like trying to sum it up. And then a month later, you're like, ah, I totally overgeneralized about this or that because it's, it, there is so much variation. There's a ton of variation uh, within a species, but also um, when I first started learning about guitars, you know, if you were to create a pie chart of what factors in a guitar end up leading to how that guitar sounds, I had the impression the back and side species would take up like half the pie, you know, mm -hmm. um, but in reality, it's such a complex system and the, and the species of the back and side woods is really just a tiny sliver of a slice out of that pie in terms of contributing factors to how a guitar ends up, which I didn't know at the time when I made that decision, but I'm glad that it's true. Yeah. Um, I'm also following the lead of of some builders who've come before me that have really blazed a path in, in these directions, like uh, Alan Carruth mm -hmm. out of New Hampshire, John Arnold over in Tennessee, John Calkin, who uh, was a Huston Dalton guy for a long time and really okay. liked to experiment with woods. And, you know, some of the some of the wood suppliers who have a deep knowledge of the stuff, guys like Chris Herod at LMI. I'm kind of just focusing on building guitars out of the woods that I want, mm -hmm. putting them out into the world, getting them into the hands of great players, having them record with them, and then just kind of letting letting that speak for itself. And I've been yeah. very happy with the results I've gotten with how my guitars are sounding. And I don't mm -hmm. think they necessarily reflect some of the thoughts that a lot of people have about some of the tone woods I'm using. And you see more and more people experimenting and and being open to trying different things. And I I think that'll continue over time. Yeah. I'm glad that we I, I had the chance to put put your guitar into both Carl's and and Gareth Pearson's hands just to hear yeah. what they both did with it. Because I mean Gareth is such a that that video he plays Black Mountain Rag and he's so like an absolute firecracker. Like just it's a constant stream of notes, but like that guitar actually holds up really well to that. It's got a directness and a clarity that not not every guitar would be like a guitar that you would choose for that. So it's it was so interesting to hear it in those two different settings and to just find out what could be done with that combination. Yeah, uh, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was pleasantly surprised 
to see how well it held up to that because yeah. you know he, he he was driving it yeah and uh, I was like oh man that actually it holds up and yeah yeah and then it still sounds amazing being played more more openly and with more sustain and, and yeah like they both did such great jobs and I'll, I'll splice in both both demos into yeah. this uh, this interview and then there's the third demo that Brian Rahia did yes, here in my yeah. shop. That is one fingerstyle album that I've listened to kind of on repeat over the mm-hmm. past year. It's his album Timber. Yeah, he was such a great discovery to get to, to get to find through your work because, yeah, he's such a fabulous guitarist, and we we've got a I think similar taste in terms of what we like. So he's posted a few things where I'm like, oh, I love that so much too. <laughs> yeah, nice. Well, uh, what's what's next for you after this? Do you have any shows coming up this summer or fall? I'm doing the Woodstock show for the first time in October. So I'm excited about that. I've been wanting to do that show for years and be flying out for that. And uh, actually, speaking of Tonewoods, I'm building my first guitar with a Douglas fir top. That's oh, interesting. on my table at that show. Oh, very cool. And, oh, uh, awesome. Yeah, it's actually in finish right now. So it's pretty, pretty far down the line. And I, I'm, I'm really excited to hear it get strung up. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get to go too and get to meet you in person and, and check out all your, your, all your other guitars. Cause I, yeah, I would just so love to get to play more of your, more of your guitars. Yeah. That would be um, great. Yeah. Well, unfortunately we don't have, like I said, the, the one that you sent us is already sold, but people who are interested in working with you can um, purchase a bespoke slot with us and then mm-hmm. get to custom order uh, a guitar from you and pick out all the tone woods and all the, all the fun stuff. So if anybody's yeah. interested, they can reach out to us about that. But I think, I think that's it. Um, this has been such a nice chat with you and I yeah, so appreciate your time. Yeah, right back at you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talking Guitar. Sadly, our first Gallero sold the second we received it this summer, but we can help you order your own custom guitar from Mark anytime. Currently, he offers a mid-sized OM, available in his core model offerings of Walnut or Myrtle, plus Sitka or Engelman, though custom options include one of the widest selections of uncommon tonewoods you'll probably ever see. To learn more about Mark and all of our fabulous builders, come visit us at thenorthamericanguitar.com. Until next time. Thank you.